Home is a member of the Boing Boing Podcast Network. For more information, visit boingboingpodcasts.com. And to learn more about this show, visit homestories.la. Back in January, in an episode called Unmaking a Home, I did something unusual for this podcast. I told you a story about me. This series is, by design, not about me. I set out a year ago to find, report, and share the stories of other people and the ways they think about home. And with that one exception, Episode 7, and also the introductory episode, which I called Episode 0 for some complicated reason that I can't remember now, that's what I've done. So Episode 7 was an outlier. You can go back and listen to it. I won't recap it for you here, except to say that it was the story of the immediate aftermath of my mother's death at 94 in Philadelphia in December, and the white-hot blur in which my sister and I disposed of her earthly belongings. We spent 72 hours stuffing into trash bags the things she'd accumulated over many decades of travel, work, marriage, motherhood, of life. We were pretty much in a frenzy. Why did we do that? By which I mean, why did we do it that way? I think what we told ourselves is that our normal existences as people and not executors were far away and we had obligations to return to. Family, work, the million things that take up every day. Again, life. Our lives. Which we needed to get back to, so we'd better get to work. And it was, of course, true. But in the way of some things that are true, it didn't go far enough. And it didn't prepare me in any way for what would happen 10 months later. This week, Unmaking a Home, Part 2, Everything Must Go. This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. My sister Ellen has a dog, Rosie, a sweet-tempered old golden retriever, Rottweiler mix. This means that she also has a dog sitter, Gretchen. And in the way of excellent dog sitters everywhere, Gretchen is booked many months in advance. So, during my mother's long terminal decline in Philadelphia, my sister, who lives in Massachusetts and was the most dutiful of daughters, traveling down I-95 to Philadelphia with my brother-in-law Peter more or less monthly, during that period, Ellen booked Gretchen for regular slots stretching two years into the future. Those pre-mortem trips to Philadelphia. This is the other part of what I have to tell you about my mother's long, punishing illness. It's the rest of what you need to know to explain why Ellen and I whirled through her belongings like a tree chipper in the days after her death. Those trips. Boy, they were rough. Living on the same coast as Mom, Ellen and Peter did a lot more of the trips than I did, and they were brutal. Our mother was a tough woman who railed against her increasing infirmity, was desperate for people to blame, and managed to find them everywhere she looked. It wasn't her fault. It was who she was, how she was built. But because the person she saw most of was Ellen, and because, I guess, it's easiest to rain body shots on a person you're pretty sure won't throw in the towel and flee the ring, my devoted, kind-hearted sister became her special victim. Abuse was piled on her, and piled, and piled. Higher and higher. I remember saying to Ellen at one point, during one of the daily strategy sessions, that even by email and phone were 
lowering a cloud ceiling over our lives, sending the wind through them, threatening to upend them by the roots and blow them clean away. I remember saying to Ellen that in most families, you hoped never to hear things said that couldn't be taken back. And in ours, mom was saying them about once a week. It was like riding through a spook house that was tailored just for you. Only when you got to the end of the ride, you found that the safety bar was locked and the boat never really stopped. It just slowed a little bit and went around again. And all you could do was hold on. I got mine too, of course. We both rode the ride. It took a toll on our sleep, on our marriages, on the way we dragged ourselves through our days, jumping every time the phone rang because there was no way to predict what sort of chaos was calling. We weren't unusual in this. Every grown kid of an elderly, ailing parent goes through their own version of it, and some are better and some are worse. Ours was, objectively, pretty bad. One day in December, our mother's caregiver told us that Mom had been looking out her window across an expanse of empty sky between her apartment building and another one, and she saw her sisters there, both of them long gone, gesturing to her, telling her to come across the space between them. And she wanted to. But my dad, who died in 2000, he was there too, telling her, not yet. Which sort of perfectly describes the relationship they had. We'd employed a geriatric care manager by then, a kind and conscientious woman who'd managed to penetrate mom's anger and her defenses, to a degree at least, and gain her trust, sort of. And she told us that there was no way to put a timetable on what was coming. She'd seen clients hang on for months after moments like these, living in limbo between here and there, wanting to go, but not wanting to leave. It was all an improvisation by then anyway, so we made our plans to get to Philadelphia as fast as we could. She died while we were on the way. So all of that is the preamble to the events I described in Episode 7, the aftermath of her death three days before Christmas, and the way we disposed of her belongings. Somebody has to say it. It feels like it should be me. There was a ruthlessness about the process and a velocity. We knew people who were still picking slowly through their late parents' clothes many months after the fact, agonizing over keeping this sweater, letting that scarf go, setting that handbag aside for later disposition. We knew explicitly that we didn't want to do that. We had limited time to spend in Philadelphia, where neither of us lives, and lives to get back on track in Massachusetts and California. Here's the part we didn't reckon on, or at least didn't recognize at the time. At least, I didn't. That multi-year period of decline had been terribly tough on everybody. Mom, most of all, of course, but us two. It was exhausting and depressing and all-consuming. At the time she died, we didn't realize how thoroughly the woman she'd become in her final years, angry, bitter, manipulative, mean, had erased the one who came before, the one who drove carpool and hid Christmas presents and baked birthday cakes. Her demons had swallowed her up almost entirely, and the black hole gravity of the part that remained ate up our memories of the part that was gone. Of course we wanted to get rid of her stuff as quickly and efficiently as we could. Who wanted reminders of the woman she'd become? of the hours spent agonizing over her care and over our own uneasy complicity in her unhappiness. Nope. It was closing day. Everything must go. And it went. The belongings, donated or sent to auction. The apartment, sold. The light thrown off by her life on Earth dwindled down to a pin spot and vanished. 
and it was over. We began the process of resuming our lives. Here's the one good idea I had in this whole period. You remember Gretchen, the dog sitter. Ellen mentioned casually one day that she had Gretchen booked right through 2016, a year beyond Mom's death, as things turned out. And now she supposed she'd cancel the bookings. Wait, I told her. Stop. Don't. Keep them. And you and Peter, take some trips, some pleasure trips. Take that time you've carved out to have your guts wrenched in Philadelphia and go have some fun. Keep the bookings. Don't cancel them. And maybe late in the year, when the weather starts to turn cold in New England, you and Peter come see me and Jennifer in California. Which is exactly how it went. The trip was booked for October. We started making plans. And this is when the unexpected thing happened. As the trip grew closer, I started looking around the house, seeing it through Ellen's eyes, idly logging the things that were new or different since the last time she'd visited, and I noticed something. I noticed how many things I had around the place that had belonged to our dad. Just small things that reminded me of him. A tiny silver pillbox he'd carried saccharin tablets in in the 1960s. A wood carving he'd done of a turtle. A small brass T-square from his cache of antique tools. And I realized I had nothing of my mother's. Which is to say, nothing small and meaningful in the ways that only small things, everyday things, can be meaningful. I'd picked off a few paintings that had hung in her apartment and some photos and ephemera. By a conscious act of will over the intervening months, I'd managed to remind myself of some happy memories. But those suddenly didn't feel like enough. I wanted a totem. Something I could recall seeing my mom wear or hold or treasure. In the years before it had all gone bad. The years when she was just mom. Something prosaic, something quotidian. Only all those things were gone. I don't say any of this proudly. I cheated myself. And I'd been ungenerous to her memory. Still, I figured I could maybe save it. I called my sister and asked her if she had any appropriate tchotchkes in her possession, and if so, could she bring them on the trip? She said, sure. A week later, she began pulling things out of a bag. Jewelry was mostly what was left at this point, stuff that hadn't been sold or given to my niece, Ellen's daughter. Some of it was perfectly nice, but none of it had that I'll know it when I see it quality I was looking for. Well, Ellen said at the end, I also brought these, but I don't know. And she pulled out two long expired passports. One my mom's and one my dad's. They're green. Passports are blue now. They used to be green. And they're bigger than the passports you get now. They were issued on April 3, 1970 for my mom's and September 4, 1964 for my dad's, which includes a black and white photograph of both of them. You could do that in those days, I guess. My mom in what looks like a fashionable jacket, cashmere maybe. My dad in a dark suit and tie and horn rim glasses. The stamps in dad's passport outline an Atlantic crossing on the Queen Elizabeth in the fall of 1964 from New York to Southampton in the UK. I was very young then. I have a dim recollection of being dressed up and driven to New York early one morning, long before dawn, to see them off, and then home again by some family friends. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton were passengers on that crossing. 
My mom liked to recall seeing a line of porters carrying what looked like an endless procession of Taylor's perfectly matched white luggage up the gangplank. Late one night somewhere on the Atlantic, my father, a reserved person around strangers and uneasy around power and celebrity, braced Burton in one of the ship's bars to get an autograph for Ellen, who was then 13. Burton was loaded and not much more than barely polite, but my father got the autograph. So there was a happy memory for me, for Ellen, and I was pretty sure for Mom. Not exactly what I'd been looking for, I didn't think, but it'd do. I flipped over to Mom's passport next. It was issued six years after Dad's in 1970. Another black and white photo. She's solo this time, her hair a little longer than the last one, her expression a little less bright, a little more wary, a little more the one I remembered. Another set of stamps for other trips. I remember the first of these a little more clearly, Spain and Portugal in the spring of 1970. They'd ordered an enormous needlework rug that was sewn to their specifications by nuns. Ellen and I sold it after Mom died. And then another trip to England and France, the spring of 1972. And this one I remembered pretty well. They'd pulled me out of high school to take me with them. My teachers had shrugged, indicated in a general way that, sure, that'd be educational too, I guess, and they'd signed off. And away we went on an Air India 747 that reeked of curry. I was 15, old enough to know better, old enough to behave better. I behaved badly. I can't remember exactly what my grievance was. It was all a swirl of hormones and adolescent angst of wanting to be with my friends much more than I wanted to be traipsing around Europe with my stupid parents. I was at that age, and I made sure they knew it. The family legend is that I was unbearable, sulky, and miserable. As I say, I don't remember my thinking very clearly such as it was, but I don't have much trouble believing I was a giant pain in the ass. The story would get trotted out from time to time, most often ruefully. Sometimes, in my mom's later years, when she'd stuff her emotional blunderbuss with whatever nails and gravel she could find lying around, she'd load it up along with the other old slights and resentments and pull the trigger. Mostly, though, the memory of that trip had laid down and faded away. I hadn't thought about it in years. Until I saw those stamps in her passport, the visible, legal record of it all. Looking at that picture of my dad, so solidly adult, half a decade younger then than I am now, sensing time folding in on itself, I felt adult wisdom come knocking. And I realized, I'm sorry to say for the first time, that not entirely, of course, but partially, they'd taken me with them to England and France, where they themselves had been young and happy many years before, because they wanted to share some part of their histories with me. I'd been given an irreplaceable opportunity to get a fuller picture of my parents as human beings and to see the prehistory of my own life. And I'd rolled my eyes like the overprivileged teenager I was. Well, now I'd done it. I'd gone chasing after some rosebud from my own distant past. I didn't even know what sort of rosebud it was. No, no, no not, not that sled. A, a different sled. And all I'd gotten for my trouble was a mistake I'd never be able to undo and a regret I'd never be able to shake. I didn't even know why I'd done it. Forgiveness, my sister said. What? I said. Forgiveness, she said. Oh, I said. 
That seems as good a bucket as any to put it in. I'd wanted something to remind me of a simpler, happier, less complicated and awful time because I wanted to carry with me a fuller picture of the woman who'd raised me. It was 10 months after her death, 10 months after we'd pushed almost everything that reminded us of her out the door, sent it to strangers, then bolted the door, then sold the door. And what I wanted now was to forgive her for her anger and bitterness for the things she'd said and done to let them go. I wanted something to uncomplicatedly remind me of a better time, something I could use to absolve her. I didn't get it. What I got instead was something that implicated me in her unhappiness, or some part of it. She had a lot of it to go around. Maybe that was better. Maybe time and fate and history were presenting me with an opportunity, with a deal. I'll tell you what, Mom. I'll forgive you for being scared and old and acting badly. And I'll forgive myself for being a kid and selfish and stupid. Maybe that's the bargain. I'm hoping I'm smart enough to take it.